Some of the most difficult sermons for a preacher to deliver are the ones in her or his first year in a new parish. That might seem to be surprising after all, you may assume, and it's true that I have a whole file folder full of old sermons that I can reach into and, and pull out and deliver, but I experienced uh, in the past that any time I did, a, did that, just pulled out an old sermon, just preached it as is, it fell very flat. Every sermon, if it's really going to work, needs to be preached within its context. Now, there, there might be some old stories, and there will be. There may be some quotes or ideas or thoughts from other sermons that bubble along, but the first sermons are the hardest to deliver because the new pastor in, in a new congregation doesn't know the stories in the pews. I've worked very hard since I began way back in January, and I think, by the way, of January 8th is sort of my first official Sunday. That was a Sunday when we took a vote, if you remember that day, but I kind of think of that as the, as the time that we began together as, as pastor and parishioner. I've worked really hard to know as many of your stories as I possibly can, to pay attention to the history of First Community Church, to the long legacy of wonderful programs and ministries at Akita, to note all the great things we've done in music ministry, our mission work here locally and around the world, to pay attention to our pastoral care ministries and the many other things that we do in education with children and youth as a way of getting to know your stories, as a way of understanding who you are in the pews. Now, in a congregation this size with indeed thousands of members and two campuses and all of that, there's no way a single pastor can learn every single story. That's, that's why we have other ministers on our staff, uh, outstanding ones like Jim Long. No, can't learn them all, but we need to know enough about each other in order for these sermons to be preached in a way that makes sense to the very life of this congregation. So I've, I've tried to, in this first few months together, to take a, a very pastoral approach in order to know the church's story and to know your stories, your struggles and joys, your frustrations and faith, to truly understand who we are here at First Community. And so that's why I've been going to Camp Akita. I've spent a couple of, of weeks, a couple of days going up there to see uh, the camps in action and see how things go. In fact, on Thursday night of last week, I went up late in the afternoon to see the closing ceremony at a fourth and fifth grade uh, session. It was really great fun to be there, uh, to hike up onto Bald Eagle and see all the great things that happened on that night and then hike back down uh, the hill to Vesper Hill where the closing ceremony was held. In between those two events, I met with the, with the summer staff uh, counselors, had two separate meetings with, with those folks, crammed together into the cabin in the Glen, which I think is named very well, don't you? It's kind of a nice thing. <clears throat> and I just said to them, I have three things I want to find out from you. Number one, what's been your greatest experience here at camp this summer? Number two, what's been one of your toughest experiences here? And number three, tell me about your spiritual life. Has it been enriched or has it been a struggle? If you're willing to be that open, please do. We had a marvelous conversation. I, I cannot begin to tell you how impressed I am with these young adults who are helping to shape the lives of, our, of the youngest members of our church and our community here, at, here in Columbus. There was one, one young man who was particularly open. I won't give you the details, but he was very vulnerable. He talked about a time when things were very, very difficult this summer. And he looked across the room at another one of the counselors and said to him, you were the one that God sent. You were the one that I needed to hold me up to get me through. And I just want to say in front of everyone how grateful I am for you. And the group was real quiet as, as he shared that. And then I said, thank you for your openness, for your vulnerability. I know it takes courage to do that. And he kind of he pushed back on me. He said, not really. This is my family. 
I love these people, and they love me. And what I've learned here at camp more than anything else, he said, is that we need each other. We need each other. We've got to carry each other. It's a beautiful statement of the power of God's Spirit at work when we're vulnerable, vulnerable enough, open enough, honest enough to let each other and let God know that sometimes we can't make it on our own. Sometimes we need each other. My meeting with them reminded me of, of Anne Lamott's wonderful book, Help, Thanks, Wow. She says those are the three essential prayers. If you can say those three words, you have three prayers that you can rely on in your life. The kids talked about times when they needed some help. They talked about times when they were just grateful. And there were other moments when it just was, wow, the Spirit of God is alive here. In that conversation, we talked about fear and trust, love and grace, frustration and faith. Their stories were the perfect illustration of a community of faith formed together to care for one another. Today's text from Psalm 25 is an individual prayer. In fact, it's an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? That's where it follows. It, this, in this particular instance, it follows the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter of each verse in Psalm 25 is, is in correspondence to the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. That's as many as I can remember. And it follows each one of those all, all the way through. And sometimes an acrostic can be kind of, oh, uh, not, not a great bit of literature, but this time it's beautiful. And the way this one has written, what turns out to really be advice, not just for himself, but for the whole congregation. He's inviting everyone to lift themselves up to God, to give their souls to God, to give their lives to God. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges some failure. And then he depends, he hopes especially, on the very love of God to give him strength to move forward as he follows in the desire of God in what God desires for him. Well, I thought of all of that as I was driving home from Akita and the way the, the kids' stories there, the counselors especially, had inspired me. I turned on my radio and up, pop, up popped a U2 song and Bono singing, Listen to me now. I need to let you know you don't have to go it alone. It's you when I look in the mirror, he sang. It's you when I don't pick up the phone. Sometimes, sometimes you can't make it on your own. It's what the kids had said at camp. It's what the psalmist has been saying to the community of faith for thousands of years. Sometimes can't make it on your own. We need God. We need each other. That, that evening's experience at, at camp was reflective of the many conversations I've had with you here in Columbus. When I sat down to write this sermon, I thought of my prayer list and the prayers that I, I say every morning in the quiet space of, of either my apartment or here in my office at, at the South Campus. Prayers for members of the church, prayers for families who are going through physical and, and health issues, prayers for families and couples who are dealing with all kinds of things, prayers for individuals who are facing doubt and loss, fear and worry. All of those fears, all of those prayers came back to me as I sat down to get into this sermon. And then I remembered a quote from George Ross. He's in the resurrection now, but he was a great preacher who, who preached in Akron, Ohio. He says, every person goes through a valley of their own. For some, 
it's the valley of, of depression. For others, it's the valley of addiction. For others, it's a valley of, you know what it is for you, I'm sure. Every one of us has a valley, a valley of the shadow that we must face. And, and since that is, is true, one of the promises I made to myself upon arriving here as, as your pastor was really to focus on being real. I, I don't mean to reveal my inner secrets or use the pulpit as a place where I deal with my own uh, therapeutic needs. No, no, that would be inappropriate. But rather just to not worry about my reputation, not worry about how I look or what somebody thinks about me or doesn't think about me, but just to be who I am, to accept this call, not as, not as one who has the answers, but as one who is a fellow struggler, a fellow traveler, one who wants to go with you along the way, along the journey toward God. Uh, Psalm 25 is a, is a wonderful illustration of one who is as real as he can possibly be, who's open about his weakness and failure. He's honest, and yet he wants to be in a relationship with God. He wants to follow in the desire of God, the, the way of God. He wants God's ways to be his ways. One of my favorite preachers says, that's what it means to be church. The church is real people with real issues, trying to figure out life together. That's our simple call, really. That's a pretty good summary of what Psalm 25 is about, too. It's a real person with real needs who's trying to find his way to a life with God. Well, George Ross, that, that preacher that I mentioned a moment ago from, from Akron, he tells a story about a time that he was at a cocktail party. And, and by the way, just so you know, Cocktail parties are dangerous places for preachers. I mean, it's just a dangerous place. You know, inevitably, somebody has a, a couple of glasses of wine, and the next thing you know, they find out you're a preacher, and they come over and say, uh, can you explain the book of Revelation to me, please? And my general answer is, have another drink. It'll make a lot more sense, just so you know. <laughs> well, this woman came up to, to, to uh, George at this party, and she said to him, uh, I hear you're a pastor. What's the most important aspect of a sermon? Well, he gave this long, boring answer about the proper interpretation, uh, interpretation and how you have to have good, a good hermeneutic approach and, a, and a, the right kind of exegesis. He used fancy seminary words like that. And <clears throat> he went on for about five or six minutes, and it was clear he realized that he was boring her to death. And finally, he stopped and said, well, you tell me. What's the most important element of a sermon? She looked right at him and said, hope. The most important element in a sermon is hope. Every time I hear someone preach, I want to feel as though there's hope. Hope for me, hope for a church, hope for the world. Sermons should offer hope. She was saying as clearly as anyone that the single conviction we carry in this life of faith is the promise that in the end of all ends, the end of all that is, God's love will be there to embrace us and enfold us and carry us forward into eternity. Verse 5 of our reading this morning says something similar. Lead me in your truth, God. Teach it to me, because you are the God who saves. I put my hope in you all day long. I put my hope in you. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope can revive your day. It can revive your faith. It can revive your family. It can revive your life if you let it, if you let it be part of who you are. Several years ago, when I was in Kansas City serving the church there, I made a call on a woman who was dying. She was in her 90s. Her name was Letha Bash. 
She was the widow of the great preacher at Country Club Church from the 60s and 70s, Dr. Lawrence Bash, one of my heroes in, in the preaching business. My dad, in fact, who was a pastor, subscribed to, to Dr. Bash's sermon uh, service series back in the 60s. I'm pretty sure I heard a couple of Dr. Bash's sermons growing up as a, as a kid. Loved that man and loved his wife. She was a great supporter of mine and a great friend. But I, as I was driving over to, to see her, I was in the middle of, a, of kind of a flat time in my life. My faith felt like it was lifeless. My preaching seemed dull and, and pedantic. And the fact that you would know it was dull and pedantic was the fact that I used a word like pedantic in my preaching. <laughs> I wasn't feeling good about my work, wasn't feeling good about the ministry. I felt like I was going nowhere fast. Well, I got to her house. I didn't have a choice. I still had work to do, still had to make calls. And so I got to her house and knocked on the door. She had a live-in 24-hour-a-day nurse. The nurse met me and said, come on in, fix a cup of tea, have some tea, and I'll get Mrs. Bash ready to see you. Ten minutes later, she called me into her room. I walked in, and there was, there was Letha sitting up in her bed. As soon as she saw me, she said, come here. She stuck out her hand. Sit down. She pulled me down to the chair. What's wrong? <laughs> By the way, it's just a sign. Don't mess with preacher spouses. They always know. They can always cut right to the chase. I said, Letha, my, I don't know, but my faith feels flat. My, my ministry seems lifeless. I, my preaching is just, it's, it's not very good. I, I, I don't know what to do. She was still holding my hand. She said, Glenn, do you know that I pray for you every day? Do you know that I pray for your church every day? You know that I know I'm dying, but I'm going to pray for you every day that I'm alive. And when I die and when I go to heaven, I'm going to walk straight up to God and I'm going to say, Lord, would you please help Glenn? Because he needs your help right now. She had a little sparkle in her eye when she said that. And by the end of the visit, hope was back. I went back to my office. My spirits were lifted. My hope was renewed. Why? Because a dying 90-year-old woman reminded me that hope is at the center of who we are as people of faith, that it is our hope in life and in death that God will never let us go, that God will continually hold on to us. And it was a simple way of experiencing the simple fact that we need each other. We need God. And we need each other. The psalmist proclaims to God, For that matter, don't let anyone who hopes in you be put to shame. This, this text was written at a time when the Israelite people were in captivity. Israel had been destroyed. The temple torn down and burnt to the ground. Most of their friends and relatives were gone, murdered at the hands of the Babylonians. Now here they are, decades later, still wondering, will they ever return to their homeland? Will they ever go back? Is the Lord going to be faithful to them? What will happen next? They feel as though they're being put to shame. Their collective prayer is their longing to go home. Their practicing faith is their hope to discover again the desire of God. And we don't have to be dragged off into captivity to feel humiliation and shame and be overwhelmed by, by worry. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that everyone here has a moment that you've regretted. Maybe some words that you spoke in anger that as soon as you let them out of your mouth, you realize, oh, I should not be saying that. A, a time when you did something or said something that you know, as soon as you did it, 
Oh, please, Lord. Or you've done again, whatever it might be, fill in the blank. The psalmist wants us to put our hope in God, to be honest and frank in, in our prayers. I love the way Anne Lamott says it. She says, prayer is taking a chance that against all odds and past history, we are loved and chosen and do not have to get it together before we show up. Don't you love that little saying? We're loved and chosen and don't have to get it together before we show up. But that's one of the mistakes the church has been making for, for, for way too long. We somehow get this mistaken idea that we've got to get everything right in our life and then God will show up to us and we can show up in church and we can be a part of the sacred life of the, of the congregation that somehow everything's got to be right and then it'll be okay. No. I remember years ago when I was a youth minister, I took over a church youth ministry that was very small. We only had about five kids. And after about six months, we decided, well, let's do something to help us grow. Let's have a Valentine's sweetheart dance. So we invited everybody in the neighborhood and kids in the church, invited all their friends. We had 50 people show up. It was huge. It was the biggest youth ministry event in that church in, in years. We had this great dance. It was on a Saturday night. And when the dance was over, I said to all the, the ones who had come for the first time, hey, we have church on Sunday mornings. We'd love to see you back here tomorrow. The next day, 9 o'clock service, I'm sitting on the front pew there getting ready to participate as one of the leaders. I turn around and look as we're singing the opening hymn. Six of the boys who'd been there the night before are walking right down the center aisle. They came in and they sat down right next to me. They were dressed a little different. They were wearing those baggy pants that are barely hanging on. You know the kind I'm talking about? And they wore big baggy shirts and some of them had on baseball hats. All of them, the ones that had hats on, were turned backwards. But they came to church. Part of me kind of wondered, Wow, I invited people to come, and they did. When the service was over, a man came up to me, a member of the church, kind of was pointing his finger. Those boys better clean up next week. They can't come to church dressed like that. They can't wear those hats. You better do something about it. Well, my heart was pounding, but I kind of stood up as tall as I could, and I said, I'm glad they came to church. I don't care how they're dressed. God doesn't look at our clothes. God doesn't look at our hair or our hats. God looks at our hearts. And they made their way into the sanctuary. This is the first time they've ever come to church. And as far as I'm concerned, they can come dressed however they want. And then I turned and ran as quick as I could. <laughs> one, one of the great mistakes of the church is the foolhardy notion that somehow we have to be all cleaned up, not just on the outside, but on the inside too, that our, our spirits and our health and our, and our minds, everything needs to be right and ordered. Then, 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 then God will welcome us and love us. Absolutely not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great, brilliant theologian, preacher, and honestly, hero of the faith, wrote about this. You know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, don't, don't you? In the 1930s, he, he was offered a prestigious position at a, at a wonderful seminary here in the United States, but he turned it down and instead went back to his native Germany where he fought against the Nazis and Hitler. You may recall that he was murdered by the Nazis on what turned out to be the last day of World War II. In the 30s, though, he worked on grace he struggled with grace. He wanted the church to understand the power of grace. He writes, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. He who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. The desire of God, the, the art of soul searching is finally, finally giving up on the idea of trying to impress God and trying to impress each other. Instead, simply being who you are and who God has called you to be and allow the wonderful good news of grace to bless you 
in all that you say and do. My dad, who was a pastor for many years, loved to say, it was not original to him, but he loved to say it all the time, the church needs to be a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. There's great truth there. It's a cliche, and yet it's true. Consider the story of the apostle Peter. You know the story of Peter, the one who followed Jesus, the one who was called the rock. Jesus said, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And yet there's a flip side to his story. Peter continually stumbled and fell. Peter continually made mistakes. He, he, he misunderstood things all the time. He was always confused about what Jesus really wanted him to do. There was one time when Jesus was saying, we're going to go this direction, here's how my ministry is going to go. And Peter stands up and says, no, we can't do that. And Peter, Jesus looks right at him and says, Peter, you are Satan to me, get out of the way. On the night before the crucifixion, Peter again, full of himself, says to Jesus, I'm with you, Lord. I'll be with you. I'll protect you. I'll care for you. I'll be there. I'll fight for you. And Jesus says, how he knows this, I don't know, but he knew. Peter, before morning, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Jesus is arrested. Peter finds himself alone in the dark. A slave girl, a, a maid, comes up to him and says, weren't you with him? Weren't you with Jesus? I, I saw you. No, 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 it's not me. Later, another one comes up to him, another slave girl. You look familiar. Aren't you one of the Galileans' disciples? I saw, no, 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 no. Finally, a third. You have an accent. You sound like you're with him. And he, this time, Peter swears at him. It's right there in the Bible. He swears at him and says, no, I don't know him. And in the distance, a rooster crows. Matthew's gospel says that Peter wept bitterly. But here's the beauty of the story. Three days later, on what we call Easter morning, when Peter gets the news of the resurrection, he sprints, he runs to the tomb. Seven weeks later on Pentecost Sunday, it is Peter who stands up in front of thousands and preaches a sermon inviting everyone to, be, to follow in the way of Jesus, to be baptized in the spirit of grace and love and hope, to, be take, to let the hope of God take their life and give them the desire, the very desire of, of heaven. It's that same one. We love Peter because like us, he stumbles and falls. And like us, he models for us what it means to get up and go again. And so on this day, we come together as the sacred people of God, seeking the desire of heaven, the hope of the Spirit. Is your, is your heart broken? Is your faith wounded? Well, then, then bring your wounds Bring your wounds to the Lord's table today. Bring them here. Don't worry about being less than perfect. Don't worry about the fact that you may have stumbled on the way in. No, bring your wounds here, for it's Julian of Norwich, the great mystic who said, she said, all our wounds are worships. Come to this table and experience the goodness of God's grace.
It is now time to receive our morning tithes and offerings, and as we gather in worship, we do gather with gratitude for the blessings of life. But however we come, however we give, we give as we are called, and we give with a great sense of joy and thanksgiving. <laughs> 